Chapter 8 of The Short Stop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Short Stop by Zane Gray. Chapter 8 Along the River. Castorius blanked the wheeling club the next day, and the following day Spear won his game. Findlay players had returned to their old form, and were getting into a fast stride, so the chronicle said. Three straight from Columbus was the slogan. Mac had signed a new pitcher, a left-hander named Polk, from a nearby country village, and was going to develop him. He was also trying out a popular player from the high school team. Mac had ordered morning practice for the Columbus series of games. The players hated morning practice, drill they called it, and presented themselves with visible displeasure. And when they were all on the grounds, Mac appeared with a bat over his shoulder, and with his two new players in tow. Polk was long and lanky, a sunburned rustic who did not know what to do with his hands and feet. Batten practice, called out Mac sharply, ordering Polk to the pitcher's box. Polk peeled off his sweater, showing bare arms that must have had a long and intimate acquaintance with axe and rail pile. "'Better warm up first, said Mac. It developed that Polk did not need any warming. When he got ready, he wound himself up, and going through some remarkable twist that made him resemble a cartwheel, he delivered the ball towards the plate. Thatcher just dodged in time to save his head. "'Speed! Whee! Wow!' exclaimed the players. "'Speed!' echoed Thatcher. "'Wait till you get up there.' Polk drove Thatcher away from the plate, and struck Meade out. "'Put him over,' said Benny as he came up. The first ball delivered hit Benny on the foot, and roaring he threw down his bat. "'You rube! You wild Indian! I'll get you for that!' Enoch Winters was the next batter. "'Say, you lean, hungry-looking rubberneck, if you hit me!' warned Enoch in a soft voice." Polk struck Enoch out, and retired Chase on a little pop-up fly. Then Cass sauntered up with his wagon-tongue bat and a black scowl on his face. "'Steady up! Steady up!' he said. "'Put him over. Don't use all your steam.' "'Mister, I ain't commenced yet to throw hard,' replied Polk. "'Well, what?' yelled Cass. "'Are you kidding?' "'Slam the ball. Break your arm, then.' The rustic whirled a little further round, unwound himself a little quicker, and swung his arm. Cass made an ineffectual attempt to hit what looked like a white cord stretched between him and the pitcher. The next ball started the same way, but took an upward jump and shot under Cass's chin. Cass, who had a mortal dread of being hit, fell back from the plate and glared at Polk. "'You've got his alley, Polk,' cried the amiable players. "'Keep him under his chin.' Cass retired in disgust as Mac came trotting up from the field, where he had been coaching the high school player. "'What's he got?' asked Mac eagerly. "'What's he got?' yelled the nine players in unison. "'Oh, nothing.' "'Step up and take a turn,' said Mac to his new player. "'No, don't stand so far back. Here, let me show you. Give me the bat.' Mac took a position well up to the plate and began illustrating his idea of the act of hitting." You see, I get well back on my right foot, ready to step forward with my left. I'll step just before he delivers the ball. 
I'll keep my bat over my shoulder and hit a little late, so as to hit to right field. That's best for a hit-and-run game. Now watch. See? Step and set. Step and set. The advantage of getting set this way is the pitcher can't fool you, can't hit you. You need never worry about being hit after you learn how to get set. No pitcher could hit me. Then, raising his voice, Max shouted to Poke. Hey, poke up a couple. Speed em over, now. Poke evidently recognized the cardinal necessity of making an impression, for he went through more wonderful gyrations than ever. He lunged forward with the swing he used in getting the ball away. Nobody saw the ball. Bump! A sound not unlike a suddenly struck bass drum electrified the watching players. Then the ball appeared rolling down Max's shrinking person. The little manager seemed to be slowly settling to the ground. He turned an agonizing face and uttered a long moan. "'My ribs! I—my ribs! He hit me!' gasped Mac. Chase, Poke, and the new man were the only persons who did not roll over and over on the ground. That incident put an end to the morning drill. After dressing, Chase decided to try to find Mitty Maru. The mascot had not been at the last two games, and this fact determined him to seek the lad. So he passed down the street where he had often left Mitty, and asked questions on the way. Everybody knew the hunchback, but nobody knew where he lived. Chase went on until he passed a line of houses and got into the outskirts of the town, where carpenter shops, oil refineries, and brickyards abounded. Several workmen he questioned said they saw the boy almost every day and that he kept on down the street, toward the open country. Chase had about decided to give up his quest, when he came to the meadows, and saw across them the green of a line of willows. This he knew marked a brook or river, along which a stroll would be pleasant. When he reached the river he saw Mitty Maru sitting on a log patiently holding a long crooked fish-pole. "'Any luck?' he shouted. Mitty Maru turned with a start, and seeing Chase, cried out, "'You old son of a gun! Trailed me, didn't you? What are you doing out here?' "'I'm looking for you, Mitty. What fur?' Chase leaped down the bank and seated himself on the log beside the boy. "'Well, you haven't been out to the grounds lately. Why?' "'Ah, nothing,' replied Mitty savagely. "'See here, you can't string me,' said Chase earnestly. "'Things aren't right with you, Mitty.' and you can't bluff it out on me. So I've been hunting you. We're going to be pards, you know. Are we? Chase then saw Mitty's eyes for the first time, and learned they were bright, soft, and beautiful, giving his face an entirely different look. Sure, and that's why I wanted to find you, where you lived, and if you were sick again. It's my back, Chase, replied Mitty reluctantly. Sometimes it hurts worse. "'Then it pains you all of the time?' asked Chase, voicing a suspicion that came to him from watching the boy. "'Yes, but it ain't bad today. Sometimes—hold on! I got a bite! See? It's a whopper! Thunder! I missed him!' Mitty Maru rebaited his hook and cast it into the stream. "'Fishin' for mine when I can't get to the ball grounds. Do you like fishin', Chase?' "'Love it. You must let me come out and fish with you. Sure, there's good fishin'. "'for catfish and suckers and once in a while a bass. "'I never fished any before I came out here, and I missed a lot. "'You see, moving round ain't easy for me. "'Gee, I can walk, 
but I mean playing ball or any games the kids play ain't for me. I take mine out and fishin'. I've got so I like sittin' in the sun with it all lonely around, except the birds and ripples. I used to be sore about about my back and things, but fishin' has showed me that I could be worse off. I can see and hear as well as anybody. There, I got a bite again. Mitty Maru pulled out a sunfish that wriggled and shone like gold in the sunlight. That's enough for today. I ain't no fish hog. Chase, if I show you where I live, you won't squeal. Of course you won't. Chase assured him he would observe absolute secrecy, and together they mounted the bank and walked up the stream. The meadows were bright with early June daisies and buttercups. The dew had not yet dried from the clover. Blackbirds alighted in the willows, and larks fluttered from the grass. They came presently to an abandoned brickyard, where piles of brick lay scattered round, and two mound-like kilns stood amid the ruins of some frame structures. "'Here we are,' said Mitty Maru, marching up to one of the kilns, and throwing open a rudely contrived door. The dark aperture revealed the entrance of this singular abode. "'You don't mean you live in this oven?' ejaculated Chase." "'Sure. And I've lived in worse places. Come in, and make yourself to home.' Mitty Maru crawled into the hole, and Chase followed him. It was roomy inside. Light came in from the chimney-hole in the roof, and also on one side where there was a crack in the bricks. The floor was clean and of smooth sand. A pile of straw and some blankets made Mitty Maru's bed. A fireplace of bricks— a few cooking utensils, and a box cupboard told that he was his own housekeeper. "'This is not bad. How long have you lived here?' "'Ah, uh, I fooled around in town for a while last summer, spending my money for swell lodgings, and then I found this place. Makes a hit with me.' "'But when you're sick, Mitty, what do you do? How do you manage?' "'Out of sight, and I ain't no bother to no one.' And that was all Mitty Maru would vouchsafe concerning himself." They came out after a while, and Chase wanted to walk farther up the river. Rolling meadows stretched away to the hills. There was a grove of maples not far off. "'It's so pretty up that way. Can't we go further on, and strike another road into town?' "'Sure. But them meadows and groves is private property,' said Mitty, dubiously. "'I used to fish up that way till I threw Miss Marjorie down, and then I quit. She lives in one of them grove houses. We ain't likely to meet no one.' though, so come on. They crossed several fields to enter the grove. The river was narrow there and shaded by big trees. Violets peeped out of the grass. A white house gleamed in the distance. Suddenly they came round a huge spreading tree to a green embankment. A boat rode in the water, one end lightly touching the sand, and in the boat was a girl. Her eyes were closed, her head rested on her arm, which hung over the side. A mass of violets lay in her lap. All about the boat was deep shade, but a gleam of sunshine filtering through the leaves turned the girl's hair to gold. Mitty Maru uttered a suppressed exclamation and bolted behind some bushes. Chase took a step to follow suit when the girl opened her eyes and saw him. She gave a little cry, which rooted Chase to the spot. Then, because of the movement of the girl, the boat left the sand and drifted into the stream whereupon Mitty Maru returned valiantly to the scene. "'Miss Marjorie, don't be scared. It's all right. We'll get you in.' "'Where's the oars? Chase, you'll have to wade in. The water ain't deep. Come here. 
The boat's going close to this sandbar. Chase became animated at Mitty's words, and hurriedly, slipping off his shoes and stockings, he jumped to the sand below and waded out. Deeper and deeper the water grew, till he was far over his knees. Still the boat was out of reach. He could tell by feeling with his foot that another step would plunge him over his head and was about to swim when Mitty came to the rescue. He threw a long pole down to Chase. There, let her grab that and pull her in. Chase extended the pole, and as the girl caught it he saw her eyes. They were dark blue and smiled into his. Careful, shouted the pilot above. Don't pull so hard, Chase. This ain't no tug of war. There, all right. When Chase moored the boat, Miss Marjorie gathered up the violets and lightly stepped ashore. Then an obvious constraint affected the three. She murmured a low thank you, and stood picking the flowers. Chase bent over his shoes and stockings with a very flushed face, and Mitty Maru labored with sudden and painful emotions. Miss Marjorie, it peered like we pushed the boat out, me and Chase, but that ain't so. We was walkin' this way, he wanted to go in the grove, and all at once we spied you, and I ducked into the bushes. Why, are you afraid of me, Mitty Maru? she asked. Yes. No. It ain't that, Miss Marjorie. Well, no use lyin'. I've been keepin' out of your way for a long time now, cause I knew you'd have me in Sunday school. Now you will come back, won't you? I suppose, he said with resignation, then looked at Chase. Miss Marjorie, this is my friend Chase, Findlay's new shortstop. I met the new shortstop last week, was the demure reply. Miss Marjorie, you didn't sell Chase none of them gold bricks at the church sociable. No, Mitty, but I sold him five plates of ice cream, she answered with a merry laugh. Your friend has forgotten me. Mitty Maru regarded Chase with a fine contempt. Chase was tongue-tied. Somewhere he had indeed seen those deep blue eyes. They were like the memory of a dream. Miss, Miss, stammered Chase. Miss Dean, Marjorie Dean. I met so many girls. I didn't really have time to get to know anybody well. Mitty Maru watched them with bright, sharp eyes, and laughed when Chase broke into embarrassed speech again. Finest time I ever had. I told Mitty about it. How they sold me a lot of old maid things. I sent some of them to my mother, and I asked Mitty if he could use a pincushion or two. I've been hunting Mitty all morning. Found him fishing down here. He's got the cutest little den in a kiln at the old brickyard below. He lives there. It's the coziest place. Mitty had administered to Chase a series of violent kicks, the last of which had brought him to his senses. Chase, you peached on me. You give me away, and you said you wouldn't. Oh, Mitty, I'm sorry, I didn't think, cried Chase in contrition. Is it true? asked Marjorie with grave eyes. Sure, and I don't mind your knowin', really I don't, if you'll promise not to tell a soul. I promise. Will you let me come to see you? I'd be tickled to death. You and Chase come to call on me. I'll catch a mess of fish. Won't that be fine? Marjorie's long lashes fell. The sound of a bell came ringing through the grove. That's for me. I must be going. Good-bye. Chase and Mitty watched the slight blue-clad figure flit along the path in and out among the trees to disappear in the green. And I promise to go to Sunday school again, muttered Mitty Maru. End of chapter 8